Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that this message encourages you today. For additional resources to learn about what it looks like to be fully alive with Jesus, visit our website at plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Becky Smart, and um, oh, it happened back in 1985, and my husband Mark and I were living in Greenwood. We had two daughters, age three and five, and I was just about eight months pregnant, I would say. Didn't know the sex, but didn't feel well. And so everyone helped, we were moving that day. And everyone said, let's just get you to the new house and you sit around and wait for us. I got there and um, ended up really struggling with pain. Mark came and got me and we made our way to the hospital and ended up doing a heart check and there was no heartbeat. All I could think of was, there's always been a heartbeat. So it was a rough go because I had internal bleeding. They knew he was dead. And so it took a long time, um, ended up delivering him. Um, I got to hold him. And uh, I just remember laying there almost uh, comatose, I would say. Life became very difficult after that. It was just a tough thing to try to stay home and be a mom and a wife. Things that I was doing just didn't seem easy anymore. Mark, he um, had to go back to work and, and keep marching forward. But he would come home at night and read the Bible, oh, just looking and looking for answers as to why this happened. And I think I do know people grieve differently. And we were so close before this happened, and then afterwards we were so far apart. We couldn't be there for each other. During that season, my faith was impacted. Um, I think when something like, I know when something like this happens, we always go, why? God, why? When you get angry, sometimes you get angry with God, and then you get fearful. And so I think it was five or six months after we lost Bo, our oldest became very sick, took her to the doctor, ended up the hospital for three days, and I was like, walking down the hall and I told Mark, I said, I sure hope she's gonna be okay because I'm really gonna be angry. <laughs> she ended up being fine. It was an allergic reaction to an antibiotic, but um, I just, uh, the world works on you sometimes and, and pulls you, there's this huge block between you and God at times when things are so rough. I have learned to trust God for everything. Um, it doesn't mean that and we still go through rough times. We're still gonna have tough times, but He is there with us always. He's there with me, He's there with Mark. He makes us stronger, but it's, it was a journey. And I would say, like I said, it happened in 85, so He'll be 38 this October. And we will go and um, spend dinner together just to um, remember Him. And that's what we do. So, like I said, it'll always be, in our hearts. I look forward to meeting him someday. I really do, and I know I will. 
Uh, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here. I'm so thankful for Becky being willing to share her story today. We're hearing a lot of stories in this new series that we're in, walking through the book of Lamentations. If you've got your Bibles with me, open up to the book of Lamentations. It's in your Old Testament. And as we're hearing these stories and reading through this text, we're asking the question together, how do we, as followers of Jesus, deal with the pain and suffering of this life? Um, and this last week, it kind of reminded me of one of the great sports headlines of history. Uh, the year was 1968, way back in prehistoric times, the Dark Ages, and, uh, and it was the Ivy League football championship game. Harvard was going to be playing Yale. Both teams were undefeated, but Yale was really the heavyweight. They were the juggernaut. Now, if you're a student at Yale, you know nothing is more important than beating Harvard. And if you're a student at Harvard, you know that nothing is more important than beating Yale. But Yale was heavily favored in this game, very much expected to come just kind of put the hurt on Harvard and sure enough um, Yale quickly jumped out to a commanding lead the game goes on two minutes left in the game and Yale is beating Harvard by a score of 29 to 13 so they're up by 16 but lo and behold Harvard manages to drive down the field they score a touchdown they go for the two-point conversion they get it and now all of a sudden the score is 29 to 21 with 40 seconds left Yale is now only up eight but they're going to get the ball back, surely everything's going to be okay, right? Harvard tries an onside kick. They managed to actually recover the ball, even though it was a long shot. The clock is winding down. They march a few plays down. No joke. They run one last play with zero seconds on the clock. Clock winds down. They manage to punch it into the end zone. Harvard scores a touchdown. They go for two again. They get it. And the game ends right there in a tie, 29 to 29. Now, the next day, it was absolutely crazy, of course. The Harvard students are going crazy. They storm the field. Everybody's excited. What an incredible comeback. The next day, the Harvard student newspaper runs this headline. Harvard beats Yale 29-29. <laughs> isn't that awesome? I mean, like, it's brilliant, isn't it? Like, exact same score, exact same number of points, and yet two incredibly different scenarios, right? It all depends on who you are. It's all about perspective, isn't it? Because the Yale students would say that this was the worst day of their lives. Harvard students would go on to say later that this was this amazing upset, the best day of their lives, which really just goes to show you that people from Harvard and Yale need to get a life. And all God's people said, amen, right? Yeah, it also just reminds me that so much of what we deal with in life is all about perspective, and we have a similar situation right here today in the book of Lamentations. We're in chapter 3. And here in Lamentations chapter 3, the scene is that Jeremiah is a prophet. He's the one who's writing this. Jerusalem, his beloved city, has been conquered. There's all this suffering going on around him. And toward the beginning of this chapter here, in verse 18, this is Jeremiah's perspective. He says, my splendor is gone and all that I'd hoped for the Lord. Like, everything's gone, I'm done, I'm ruined, I can't even trust God anymore. I don't even think God's going to fulfill his promise. That's Jeremiah's perspective. And yet, amazingly, toward the end of this exact same chapter, he comes to a different perspective in verse 58. Jeremiah says, you, Lord, took up my case. You redeemed my life. One chapter, one author Two very different perspectives, and nothing changed. The situation is still the same. Jerusalem is still smoldering in ruins. The people have still been killed, and the remaining ones taken into exile. So what in the world 
changed. Something was different about his perspective. And so it just begs the question for you and for me today, how do we get that? Because a lot of the time, God is less interested in changing our circumstances, and he's more interested in changing us, right? And, and so what about when the circumstances don't change, when life still hurts, when you're still confused, when you never get the answers to your questions, when the situation never gets easier, how do we get what Jeremiah found? What, what changed for him? We're going to walk with Jeremiah today through chapter 3. It's a rough beginning to the chapter. Take a look at verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah says this. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction. It's a big statement. And, and, and affliction from where? He says, I'm the man who's seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again, all day long. That's heavy stuff. And if you keep reading down through these opening verses in chapter 3, Jeremiah says that God is the one who fights against me like an enemy. God is the one who tracks me down like a hunter in the woods. God is the one who tears me to pieces like a wild animal. He says that all of this suffering that he in Jerusalem is undergoing is because of God's wrath. Now, we said last week, and it's important again to remind us today, that not all of the suffering we go through in life is because of the wrath of God. The Bible says we also just live in a creation that's under a curse, caught in a cycle of futility. We're living in a fallen world, so sometimes things just happen. Other times we experience the consequences of our sinful choices, or we experience the consequences of the actions of others. We also have a, a real and living devil who's out to steal and to kill and to, and, to, and to destroy. But Scripture does also make it clear that sometimes God does pour out his wrath on sin, and right here, this specific suffering that Jeremiah is lamenting, the destruction of Jerusalem, is because God poured out his wrath. Because Babylon came, they conquered the city, they killed the people, they took the remaining survivors into exile, they burned the temple to the ground. And, and Jeremiah knows that that's because the people had refused to obey God. Over and over and over again, for decades, God had warned them, but they ignored him. And so eventually, God fulfilled his word. He punished them for their rebellion. Jeremiah shows us, in no uncertain terms, that God is a God of wrath. So let's talk about God's wrath for a minute. I know that's why you came to church this morning, just wanting to talk about that, right? Yeah. Not a particularly popular topic, is it? But um, when you read the Bible, you can't avoid it. The wrath of God is all over the place. But before we make any assumptions, let me just remind you that God's wrath is not like your wrath. God's wrath is not like my wrath. I'm up and down. I can be an emotional roller coaster. I'm fickle. I have good days and bad days. Cut me off in traffic and you will get to experience the wrath of Luke. But, but not God. He's not like that. In God's wrath, God, God never loses his self-control. Um, God is not irrational. God does not have emotional outbursts or temper tantrums or mood swings. God's wrath, rather, is this steady, constant aspect of who he is. It's, it's part of his nature that he is consistently opposed to sin and death and evil. Like a mother who is consistently opposed to the cancer that is killing her child. 
That's the kind of wrath that God has. God has wrath against sin because he knows sin destroys the creation and the people that he loves. God's wrath is a necessary part, then, of his love. We could say it like this. God has wrath because God is love. If if God had love without wrath, then God's love would just be this kind of weak, fluffy sentimentality that couldn't actually protect the people that he loves from the things that he knows will harm them. God has wrath because God is love. And so if God has wrath against sin, then that's a problem for you and for me, isn't it? Because there's sin in here. There's sin in your life and your heart too. And so that's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were by nature deserving of wrath. It means that if God were to open up heaven right now and pour out wrath upon all of our sin, he would be right to do so. We would only be getting what we deserved. And yet, you and I can gather here today in hope and we are not consumed Because God did pour out his wrath for our sin, but he poured it out on his son Jesus instead as Jesus died in the cross on our behalf. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in his death on the cross so that when you swear allegiance to him, you're baptized into his death, you're raised to new life with him, then you and I can be shielded from the wrath that we deserve. And that means that when the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead, you and I will stand before him, and yet instead of receiving the judgment and the death that we have deserved, because we've taken Jesus' righteousness and been washed clean in his blood, we're going to get life and mercy instead. And that's our only hope. Jesus himself says in John chapter 3, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so for Jeremiah, as he's looking around at all this suffering, Babylon has come and, and torn down the temple and, and, and carried off people into exile. Man, if, if you read through the book of Lamentations this last week, it's pretty easy to tell. Tears soak these pages. Children starving, fathers murdered, mothers crying, the temple burned. Where have the promises of God gone? And Jeremiah looks around and he says, all of this is because of God's wrath. It raises some pretty serious questions for us, doesn't it, about the character of God? How could God do this? Does God still do this? And, and we have to confess that it's a bit of a mystery. Um, a few weeks ago, Rebecca and I, we got to, to take our boys down to Florida for a couple of days. It was the first time they'd ever seen the ocean. And so, you know, it's just magic in a little kid's eyes. And they spent a couple of days there on the beach and doing what little kids do. They had their little shovel and they had their little buckets. And so they spent pretty much the whole two days digging holes in the sand and running back and forth to the waves with their little bucket. And they'd get their little bucket and they'd scoop up the water and they'd come back and they'd dump it in the hole, trying to see if they could fit the entire Atlantic Ocean into this tiny hole in the sand, Right? You get where I'm going with this, don't you? That we are wading in some deep theological waters here as we're talking about the goodness and the strength and the wrath of God and the mystery of human suffering. St. Augustine said it like this. He said, uh, if you understand God, it is not God you understand. (laughs) And so we just got to know that as we're talking about the nature and the character of God, he is the vastness and the depth of the ocean, and all I've got is a tiny little bucket to try to carry it and dump it into this little hole in the sand, but we're going to give it our best shot, okay? 
Because as we're asking this question, how does the pain and suffering of this life, how does that deal with the wrath and the character of God that Jeremiah seems to be implying here? We get a clue in the actual structure of the book of Lamentations. Nerd out with me here for just a second, okay? Um, The book of Lamentations is not just a random collection of sad poems. It's not a Taylor Swift album, all right? Um, Jeremiah actually meticulously structures this book as an acrostic. Now, an acrostic is a specific literary form where Jeremiah would work down through all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, all 22 letters, and he'd start one verse with one letter, the next verse with the next letter, and so on and so forth, down through all the letters of the alphabet in each chapter of the book of Lamentations. We've got a table here to show you that in the five chapters of the book of Lamentations, four of the five chapters are 22 verses long. One verse for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He works his way down through the alphabet, kind of like saying A to Z, this is an encyclopedia of human suffering. And that's the case in four of the five chapters. But today, in chapter three, chapter three is 66 verses long. Exactly three times longer than every other chapter. Because in each other chapter, there's one verse per letter. But here in chapter 3, there's three verses per letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you can tell that today in chapter 3, we are at the literary peak of the book. And the very mountaintop of the book then must be Lamentations chapter 3 verse 33, right? And at the very top, at the pinnacle of the whole book, Jeremiah gives us a key here to understanding the puzzle of God's wrath and human suffering. At the pinnacle moment of the whole book, Jeremiah says this. He says, for God does not afflict from his heart. For God does not afflict from his heart. So yes, God does afflict. Yes, God does punish sin. Yes, God does discipline his children whom he loves. Yes, there is a hell. Yes, God will not be mocked. Yes, God does uphold justice. Yes, he is a righteous judge. Yes, the flip side of his love is his wrath. Yes, God does afflict, but God does not afflict from his heart. That means that God does not delight in bringing grief on his people. It means that God does not enjoy punishing or bringing calamity on the world that he loves. Yes, he does it because it's the right thing to do, but it's not what God loves to do. You know what God loves to do? Do you want to know what he throws his whole being into? You want to know what, what comes from all of God's heart? Jeremiah tells us in, in, in the early book, the actual book of Jeremiah, in chapter 32, Jeremiah says this. This is God speaking to the exact same stubborn people. He says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God throws his whole self, all his heart, into doing good for his people. Now, I, I want to be really, really, really careful here, okay? Because again, I'm just trying to scoop up the ocean in my little bucket, all right? So I want to be really hesitant to draw grand, sweeping theological conclusions from little tiny verses. I also definitely do not want to make it seem like two attributes of God's character are in conflict with one another because they are not. They are both good and core aspects of who he is. But 
This idea of things that come from God's heart, parts that are more natural to him, is actually echoed throughout the rest of Scripture. Um, If you were to ask an ancient Jew what the fundamental description of God's character is, they would point you back to Exodus chapter 34, where God met Moses on the mountain and told Moses who he is. And this is how God describes himself. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord. Think of all the ways he could have described himself. He's got an impressive resume. But this is what he leads with. He says, I'm the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he goes on and he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So we see here in God's own description of his character, both love and wrath, we see both justice and mercy. And yet if what God says here is true, that he punishes to the third and fourth generation, but he maintains love to thousands, that means God's grace outweighs his wrath a thousand to one. means when you cut God, he bleeds mercy. Yes, God has wrath, but the New Testament says God is love. So here's why that matters. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, um, What do you think is God's reaction when you sin? What do you think God feels when you rebel against him? What do you think his gut reflex is to do to you when you fail him yet again? Because my gut is, a lot of you think the opposite of this. That maybe your natural inclination is to think that God's reaction is to judge you. But he kind of has to be talked into showing you mercy. Like God is just itching to pour out his wrath on you when you mess up yet again, like he's some kind of heavenly hall monitor, and yet Jesus talks him off the edge and convinces him to give you a second chance yet again, like he's putting you on parole, just waiting for you to mess up one more time so he can throw you back in the slammer. And if that's your picture of God, then that picture of God will lead you to a life of fear, And you will spend every day trying harder to do better. You'll be constantly insecure, wondering if this is your last shot. Instead of resting in the eternal and unshakable grace purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ and his death on your behalf on the cross. Listen to me, if you are in Christ, if you have been baptized into his death and resurrection and sworn allegiance to him as your Lord, if you are in Christ, you're not on parole You've been pardoned. And there's a difference. When you swore allegiance to Jesus, your sins were forgiven forever. Past, present, future, once and for all. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And in that moment, it was God's delight. It was his joy. It was his natural reaction to overflow with mercy and lavish it all over you before you even knew you needed it. Yes, God has wrath, but God is love. He afflicts but he does not afflict from his heart. And, and as, you, as you walk with the Lord, as, as you embark with us on this journey of becoming fully alive in Jesus, as you grow in your faith, 
I think I'm learning that one of the marks of Christian maturity is the ability to hold truths in tension. Truths that might even seem contradictory. And instead of saying either or, it's saying both and. Yes, life is hard. And that awful thing happened. And it really hurt. But God is still good. And he does still hear. And he is still able to save. Not either or, but both and. Now, if you only hold on to one of these, if you only hold on to the life is hard piece, then you will either descend into pessimism, anger, bitterness, resentment, deconstruction, disillusionment. Or if you only hang on to the God is good peace, but you don't acknowledge the difficulty of life in this world, then you'll just kind of end up with this paper-thin, naive, trivial kind of spiritual optimism that won't prepare you to suffer when hardship does come your way, or it will hinder your ability to have compassion on those who really are hurting. And yet Jeremiah says, it's both and. God afflicts, but he does not afflict from his heart. And so back, back to our question. If the situation hasn't changed, Jerusalem's still in ruin, the people are still suffering, they don't see the path forward, and yet from the beginning of this chapter to the end, Jeremiah's perspective has changed. He goes from my hope is gone to God will redeem me. How did he get there? There's a pastor named Tim Keller in New York City. He, he suffered a lot on his own. He's with the Lord now, but he went through his cancer journey. He was kind of the shepherd of New York City through the trauma of 9-11. He says this. He says, we may hear our hearts say, it's hopeless, but we should argue back. I love that. Here's the line I want you to remember today. If you remember one thing, remember this. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. When our hearts go astray and our minds wander back and forth and our emotions are all over the map, we have to rehearse what we know to be true about God and on him we hang our hope. And that's what Jeremiah does right here. The most memorable, ver memorable verses in the whole book of Lamentations happen here toward the middle of Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 19 through 23, Jeremiah says this. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. So he's remembering all the suffering. It's easy to remember the hard stuff, right? You remember that situation. You remember what was done to you. You remember who betrayed you. You remember who abandoned you. You remember how you got hurt. It's easy to remember all that stuff. So Jeremiah remembers the pain, but then he remembers something else also. He forces another thought into his mind, and he says, yet this I call the mind. Man, that might be the most amazing word in the whole book, looking around at all this suffering, and he says, yet, yet this I call to mind, and therefore, I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hmm. Jeremiah says, my heart tells me this is hopeless, but I'm going to argue back. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what is it? Yet this I call to mind. What does Jeremiah call to mind? 
one of the interesting things here, if, if you dig into Lamentations chapter 3, a whole bunch of these words that he says right here are not original to him. Jeremiah is actually drawing nuggets from other places in Scripture. There's all kinds of allusions. He quotes Job chapter 3 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Isaiah chapter 53. What gives Jeremiah hope? What does he call to mind? Jeremiah's been reading his Bible. Man, I hope you're spending time in God's Word. Um, Historians tell us that back in 17th century England, so back in the 1600s, um, the average family probably only owned three books. Pilgrim's Progress, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and the Bible. So you can imagine, put yourself back in a cottage there in the 1600s in England. It's a cold winter night. You know, you and the kids are huddled around the fire. There's no Netflix to binge, but the kids are getting a little squirrely. They're cooped up inside. And so dad decides it's time to read a story. And so dad reaches up on the shelf and he pulls down Pilgrim's Progress, that wonderful Christian book of literature written by John Bunyan when he was in prison. And the father just reads to his children and they're spellbound listening to the story of Christian and hopeful on their journey to the celestial city. And the kid's not off, so he tucks him in bed. But the next night, it's kind of the same story. You know, kids are getting a little bit restless again. And so this time the father reaches up and and pulls down off the shelf Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the dad starts to read the stories to his children of these early believers who were thrown into the Roman arena and they sang and they prayed as the lions attacked them and tore them to pieces. And the dad would read stories to his children of these early Christian men and women like Polycarp and Perpetua who gave their lives joyfully for Christ rather than clinging to their own survival. The father would read to his children some of the amazing last words of these people as they gave their lives for the Lord. Words like people from from John Bradford who turned to the man being burned at the stake alongside him and said, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. And then I'm sure mom would walk in the room and say, honey, you're gonna give the kids nightmares. Stop all that gory stuff, right? (laughs) So he put that book away and he pulled down the Bible. And he would read stories to his children about the God who brought the plagues on Egypt and about the God who parted the Red Sea for Moses and about the God who led Joshua into the promised land and about the God who brought fire from heaven for Elijah. And is it any wonder that a generation of children raised on those three books grew up to spark the modern missions movement and lay the foundation for the Great Awakening, which is the greatest revival this continent has ever seen? What do you call the mind? when it seems like hope is gone. Man, it's so important that you're developing that habit, that you're spending time in God's word, that you're spending time in prayer, that you're becoming fully alive with Jesus in community on mission. This is my soapbox again. Man, we got these journals all over the building for you. This is your tool to help you call to mind what you need in the moment when you need it. Um, One of the great survival stories of history is the story of Ernest Shackleton. Maybe you've heard it before, but in the early 1900s, Shackleton put together a crew, 28 men. They were going, and their goal was to make it to the South Pole. So they're going to sail. They're going to sail all the way to Antarctica, try to make it to the South Pole, and, and, and they start their expedition, but eventually they make it to Antarctica, and their ship gets caught in the ice. They are stuck. Eventually, the ice flows come together and crush their ship, and they are marooned for months in exile on the ice in an Antarctica. 
Arctic winter. And so they eventually try to start figuring out how to get their way home, and they're crossing all this kind of treacherous terrain, and they kind of come to the edge of the land, and they realize that if they're going to make it home, their only chance is to try to cross the Drake Passage, which is widely regarded as the most dangerous stretch of ocean on the entire planet. Now remember, their ship had been crushed in the ice. They'd managed to salvage a few pieces of scrap wood, though, and so they built a little tiny 22-foot lifeboat, 22 feet, 28 men, made out of scrap wood. And of course, you know, all those guys on one little boat, they, they can't bring very much with them. you got to leave behind your tools, leave behind your personal belongings, leave behind the sled dogs. We don't have room for that. But before they set out, Shackleton insisted on filling the bottom of the boat with rock. And so he started sending these men around, having them gather up as many rocks as they could, and and they start dumping rock in the bottom of the boat, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of rocks. Could you imagine what those guys must have been feeling? Like you're saying, I don't don't have room for my extra food, for for an extra coat. I have to leave all that stuff gone, but you're having me fill the bottom of the boat with rocks? What's going on? But Shackleton said, no, we need more rock. And so eventually they they set out in their little boat 800 miles across open seas to try to find a whaling station to get help. And as they're sailing across the water, all these men in this tiny little boat, there's these horrible storms. The skies are dark, clouds covering the sun for days on end. But finally, at one point, Shackleton looks and he sees off in the distance a bit of white up in the sky and he's thinking, at last, you know, the sun is breaking through. Maybe, maybe there's finally some hope. Maybe the storms are going to be done. But then they realize it's not the white of the sky. It's the white cap of the biggest wave they have ever seen, 100 feet high, heading right toward them. And all those men in that tiny little boat, they hit that wave, or that wave hits them. And amazingly, they manage to ride the wave, and they manage to make it to the other side without capsizing. Long story short, all 28 men make it home safely. How did they make it across that wave? It was because of the rocks in the boat. It gave them ballast. It kept them upright and afloat, even in the storm. A huge part of our job here as the people of God, as the church, is to put rocks in your boat. We've got an hour together every week. We could talk about a whole lot of things during our time together. We could talk about a lot of good things. We could talk about six ways to manage your money better and four ways to be a good friend and five tips to have a better marriage or prepare for retirement or raise a teenager. Like those are all good things, right? But our call is to put rocks in your boat. Not just good things, rocks in your boat. Because the ballast of your life will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The rocks in your boat is always going to be the good news that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on your behalf, and he lay dead in that tomb on Friday and on Saturday, but on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven where he is seated right now, reigning over all things as king of kings, lord of lords. He's offering you the chance to become fully alive in him and to join him because one day he's going to return and establish his kingdom and make all things new. That's the rocks in the boat. That's the only thing strong enough to help you weather the storm. Hope springs from truth rehearsed. You need that ballast. You need those rocks so that when the waves are high and the sky is dark, you can remember what is true about God and what he has promised. And that's what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah calls to mind 
all those scriptures that he learned as a kid and it enabled him to look around his life at all this suffering and confusion and destruction and to say these amazing words that even if, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, this is a verse we love, isn't it? It's a beautiful promise. And if you've seen somebody like post this before, we typically see this verse with like nice curvy font, you know, and like the background picture is a bubbling brook or a cottage in a meadow or a nice hot cup of coffee, right? With like a journal beside it, all picturesque, right? But, but that's not the scene when Jeremiah writes this, is it? He's looking around at the smoldering destruction of the city he loves. He's thinking that maybe, just maybe, the promises of God have crumbled in our face. But if a mark of maturity is being able to hold truth's intention, then maybe some better background pictures for this verse would be these. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. And even in this, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And even in this, great is your faithfulness. The title of this series is Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I didn't come up with it. I plagiarized it. But I did ask the guy for permission first. <laughs> I got that title and some of the ideas for this series from a man named Mark Vrogop. He's a wonderful pastor here in Indianapolis. And he suffered a lot in his life. And he wrote a stellar book on lament called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And he got that title from two particular verses here in Lamentations. One, in Lamentations chapter 2, where Jeremiah says, How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe like, it just feels like I'm living under a cloud. And yet Jeremiah holds these truths in tension that even under the cloud of God's wrath, he says later on in Lamentations chapter 3, like we read earlier today, that, that his mercies never come to an end. And they're new every morning. And so even though the clouds are dark, we can still discover that the mercy is still deep. And that's good news for me, because I don't know about you, but I need God's mercy. Because just like Jeremiah and just like rebellious Jerusalem, sin is my biggest problem. And when I think of dark clouds and deep mercy, my mind can't help but wander back to that Friday afternoon so long ago when judgment and wrath and death were again unleashed in Jerusalem, but not on the city, on the Son of God hanging on the cross outside the city on my behalf. And the gospel writers tell us that in that moment, darkness came over the whole land in the middle of the day, and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if it feels in your life like the clouds are deep and dark, Jesus understands that. When Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who's seen affliction, 
Like maybe you feel that today. Maybe you feel like you're the one who's hurting. Maybe you feel like you're the one who's been betrayed, that you're the one who's been singled out, that you're the one who's been overlooked, that you're the one who's been neglected, you're the one who's been abused and forgotten. And yet we have to be honest that Jesus is the only one who can truly say, I am the man who's seen affliction because everything you have suffered, he has suffered. And he took the wrath of God upon himself so that you could have new morning mercies instead. And that means then that no matter how dark the clouds get and no matter how painful the loss, no matter how violent the storm or big the wave, you've still got these rocks in your boat, the hope that one day Jesus is going to come back riding on the clouds and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father and he will make all things new. And on that day, those gentle, calloused, nail-scarred hands will wipe every tear away from our eyes. And until then, the promise is that every day, every single day, every single day, his mercy will be there right when you need it. And that's how for Jeremiah, even though the situation didn't change, his perspective, his hope changed. And so in light of that mercy, in light of that faithfulness, he says this in verse 24. He says, I say to myself, the Lord's my portion. I'll wait for him. Think about that. The, the Lord is my portion. Can you say that? What's, what's a portion? A portion is a share, right? It's something you receive. You want a big portion or a little portion? If it's cottage cheese, I'll take a little portion. No thanks. <laughs> but if Rebecca made pie... I'll take as much as I can get, right? The size of the portion you want depends on the goodness of what is being offered. And let me tell you about the goodness of what is being offered to you. God is infinite. means there's not a limited number of slices of him to go around. And he's infinite in his goodness and he pours it out straight from his heart onto yours. And it'll never come to an end. Every morning when you need it, it'll be there. And every evening when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, you don't know how you're going to do it all over again, it'll be there. And when there's an empty seat at your table, it'll be there. And when you don't know the path, it'll be there. And when it hurts so bad that you don't know how these two things could possibly be true, it'll be there every single morning. Great is his faithfulness. So can you say that today? Can you say, God, you're my portion. You're what I need. Even if the cancer never goes away, even if the marriage never gets easier, if the problem never gets solved, even if money's always tight, even if that kid is always a handful, no matter what, God, I choose you. You're enough. You're my portion. And that'll be the rocks in the boat. No matter what, give me Jesus. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. I mean, Lord, I know uh, I've got brothers and sisters in the room who are hurting in ways I can't even begin to imagine. And so my prayer is that you would just beckon them gently to come to you today to receive the mercy that you long to give. 
And God, we all know people who are suffering. We know people who are hurting. We know people who, who doubt whether you are actually good or whether you are actually strong. We've all got situations, Lord, that we don't, we don't see the way out of this thing. But we're gonna hold this. We're gonna hold tight. We're not gonna let go that you are good, that your compassions never fail. Your mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning, right when we need them. And we will still say, great is your faithfulness. We praise you so much for the perfection of mercy, the perfection of wrath poured out on your son Jesus so that we could become fully alive in him. It's in his name that all God's people said, amen. You can just stay seated now. And as these words of this song wash over you, would you just make this your prayer and remember the God who loves you. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It is our deepest desire here at Plainfield Christian Church that you would experience the joy of being fully alive in Jesus. If you have any questions about our church or would like a plan to visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.